<laughs> well, we're going to try this again. Um, hopefully I won't spend the whole... <laughs> I literally went an entire hour. Oh, boy. It would have been cool to have it, though, because, boy, did I really go off on a few things. But anyways, uh, long story short, uh, the previous podcast, when I talked about... Um, Rather than uh, reading Eric Fron uh, Eric Neumann's uh, Origins of Consciousness, you'd probably be best to uh, read uh, Jung and uh, Joseph Campbell. And you won't believe how dead on I was, because upon further uh, investigation, and what I mean by that is a half dozen new books, um, not only was I right, but I was even more right than I realized, because even James Joyce falls into this camp with Nietzsche. So, uh, absolutely, there's a reason why Eric Neumann uh, sounds so familiar when he talks about archetypes and the shadows, not just Jung, because Jung's close friend was this gentleman by the name of um, Eric, I think it was Eric, don't quote me though, there's too many of these names bouncing around in my head. There's a gentleman by the name of um, Zimmer. And so long story short, this gentleman left uh, Deutschland, I think in 43, uh, to avoid, you know, the troubles. He came to America and was only able to teach for about two years before he passed. And one of his students was Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell put together his lecture notes, Zimmer's lecture notes, into a series of four books. And that was the influence of his um, obsession throughout his life. He was obsessed with Joyce before this, but then after that, Campbell was obsessed with myth and the archetype, and his experience in his, his, his seminars with Zimmer led to his hero uh, with a thousand faces, the, the hero archetype, the hero's journey. So I, I can't believe how right I was. Absolutely dead on. Uh, but I was also wrong, because... Um, I really do recommend Eric Neumann's uh, book, uh, but only the second half. Uh, the first half, like I said, he, he's talking about his, uh, his weird thing that he wants to make the basis of everything, which I think is a stretch. Uh, and then he's literally obsessed with uh, sex and the phallic symbol and all this other idea, uh, which is pretty weird, pretty misogynist in a lot of ways because he doesn't mention the yoni all that much. He's, he's just talking about the, uh, the lingam. But the second half of his book is actually well worth uh, listening to. And you can see resonance from Jung and you can see uh, where Zimmer influenced Neumann as well. But today I just want to talk about uh, how philosophy, psychology, how uh, Nietzsche's idea that uh, multidisciplinarians is what we need. We need more uh, masters of none. Because, as he said, what we, we risk having is a bunch of people with uh, giant ears, but without eyes to see and mouths to speak. Because right now, the current uh, discussion is a, a Rasmussen poll that came out. And supposedly they're canceling a, a cartoonist because of his racist uh, remarks. And so I looked into this because I didn't know anything about it. So on the left, they're claiming that this uh, cartoonist is racist because of his statements, his observations of this poll, and I'll explain the poll. 
in a moment. But worse, on the right, they're claiming that, no, what are they talking about? He was just pointing out uh, data in the poll. Well, they're both wrong, because what the, uh, the cartoonist said was definitely racist. Uh, and both the left and the right are both absolutely wrong. Because what we're actually talking about is this poll by Rasmussen, a poll of black Americans only. The first question was, is it okay to be white? 53% agree that it's okay to be white. 26% disagree that it's okay to be right. And 21% are not sure uh, it's okay to be white. If, I guess, or unsure of the question. So let's dig into this. Uh, on the right, it's going around saying 26% and 21% make 47%. So the vast majority of black people uh, aren't comfortable with white or they don't like white or they hate white. And they bandied about a 20 million uh, person number. When in reality, the majority of black Americans actually said it's okay to be white, 53%. And if you add to it the 21%, that actually becomes the identical number to the next question in the 70s. Because again, if 21% are not sure, I don't think that's not sure whether it's okay to be white. I think that's a combination of they're not sure what they're asking and they're not sure what they mean by white. So the same can be said for the 26% that say they disagree that it's okay to be white. Is it possible that they're interpreting the question as, is it okay to be a bad whitey? Is it okay to be abhorrently uh, white or a white supremacist or any of that? I think it's pretty obvious by the numbers that 53% say agree, and they're probably your average person, verbal, who uh, when you say, is it okay to be white, they take you on your word and they go, well, yeah, I mean... It's not your choice that you're white. Uh, arguably, if white is a construct, then, well, that's a whole other discussion. If 26% disagree, we've talked about this 20% of humanity that would disagree with just about anything. And 20% are unsure. But the reason why I'm highlighting this first question is because the second question in the same poll that's getting ignored that actually highlights what the numbers mean in the first poll. The second question is, black people can be racist too. 76% agree, 27% disagree, and only 8 are not sure. So let's compare these numbers. So if only 8% are not sure about the question of whether black people can be racist too, I think that highlights the 21% who are not sure about the question, is it okay to be white? I, I don't think it it's them unsure about whether it's okay to be white. I think it's unsure of what they meant by the question, what they mean by white, what they mean by okay. So let's look at the other number. The 27% disagree that black people can be racist. It's very similar to 26% that disagree it's okay to be white. What's the possibility that 27, 26% of the black population are racist. I think incredibly small. I think if we consider 20% of people are just going to be against it no matter what, that kind of opens it up to maybe 6 or 7% might be racist. But if we break down the 76% of, of, of American, black Americans believe 
or agree with the statement that black people can be racist too, then, well, why aren't you looking at that 26% above and going, well, okay, yeah, then it's probably people who are racist. But do we really think that it's a full 26%? I don't. I actually think that in the question of it's okay to be white, 53% agree. I think of the 21% that are unsure, I think the vast majority of them if you were to clarify and say, is it okay to be white? Not a racist white person or what have you, but just to be a white person. I think that the majority of that 21% would go into the agree column. And I think the same could be said if you clarified the question and said, is it okay to be a white person? Not a racist person, just a white person. And I think we'd at least half the disagree number down to 13%, but I think it'd probably go even lower. So can black people be racist too? Well, if 76% of people agree, then that explains why 26% don't think it's okay to be white, because black people understand that everybody uh, is at risk of being racist. Arguably, everybody is racist. This is what Jungian and, and, and Eric Neumann is trying to teach us, that when you admit the gestalt of existence, when you admit that you are both good and bad, light and dark, you have within you your shadow and your good, then you understand that we all have within us the ability to be a concentration camp guard or to ostracize someone strictly because of a choice they might make based on their own health or their own personal perception or situation. I don't think we see the actual racism in here because I think the same could be said is if you clarified black people can be racist too, I think if you clarified that this is not a political question, this is just asking does everybody, let's literally, I would actually change it for the black Americans only and say, can all people be racist as well? This racist too. I think that would half the disagree number as well. I mean, the reason why I mention it is there was a poll here in Canada recently that's being uh, discussed. And the way the headline goes is, is 26% of Canadians would agree to a lockdown again if we uh, found ourselves in another horrible situation like a pandemic. So the news is talking about ah, 26% uh, support uh, lockdowns again for COVID, right? Ignoring the fact that the question was if we found ourselves in a severe pandemic again. Then on the other side, we have the right who are saying, see, 25% want us to go right back to the lockdown. And they're ignoring the fact that it's in the situation of another pandemic. But the real insight is that 75%, three quarters three in four people would not support a lockdown, even in the case of a major pandemic. So being right in the middle, why aren't we talking about the damage that's been done on both sides? Yet the left will say, see, see the right's uh, anti-vax sentiments have led to this. And the right would say, see, see your lies in the media and your misrepresentation of the safety and all this other jazz has led to this. But there's, where's the, the silent majority I think they're beginning to stand up. But the silent majority that goes, wait a minute. Y'all are just pulling a book out of Bernays' book, Propaganda. And that book's about 100 years old at this point. So who really is living in the Dark Ages? Or in French, we call that uh, uh, vieux comme le monde, right? Who's old world thinking here, right? Who's con, con, con? Because I got news for you. It's not the majority, because this, the slam dunk for me was this uh, weekend. 
I was talking to a parent who had a handout sent home with, uh, with their daughter for Black History Month. And in it, it had different black inventions uh, for us to be proud of and different black um, uh, personages. And in it, it had uh, Rosa Parks and it had the inventor of the super soaker. Um, but what they had, and this is where I talk about some real significant issues we should look at, these teachers didn't put any effort into making it Canadian for these students or even personalizing it so that the avatars represented the audience. As the great Canadian Marsha McLuhan said, that all content should represent the audience. So they sent home this uh, handout that's supposed to celebrate black voices and black inventors in history. Uh, they had Rosa Park, and the quote they had for Rosa Park was, uh, I mean, really poor English, rather than just admitting that and, and, and maybe putting a little quip as to uh, her impact on history. But worse yet, each one of these individuals that were being highlighted for their um, contribution to history, all history, humankind history, but being highlighted for their race as a black person, what was missed is this is Canadian students. And, and they sent them home with a Rosa Parks, not Viola Davis. Right? So I think it's a twofold systemic racist uh, situation here because the teachers, one, didn't care enough to personalize this content so that it could resonate with their students. So are they really celebrating black history? And two, ignoring Viola Davis as a Canadian teacher and an educator, I think is an example of systemic racism because unlike Rosa Parks, who was a victim of some individual personalities, persons who just, you know, for whatever reason, uh, were enforcing a rule. Viola Davis highlights actual systemic racism because Viola Davis is a, a Canadian who bought a ticket to see a movie but didn't want to sit in the colored section. And since the theater wasn't full, she thought, well, why can't I just sit in the white section? Which, by the way, there shouldn't have been a white or a colored section in Canada. They love to teach how we didn't have segregation. Well, that's not true. But did they just ask her to move and politely, or did they just say, okay, well, if you don't want to sit, then we'll refund your ticket and you can go, or did they just tell her to leave? And No, they actually arrested her. And then they charged her with tax evasion because, again, they couldn't charge her. She was a human being. She was protected even by the Magna Carta, which goes back to, what, the 15th century. No, they charged her with tax evasion because they said that she purposely purchased the ticket, that the only ticket she was allowed to purchase, a black person's ticket, and sat in the white section so that she could avoid paying the tax. And again, this is like three cents tax. But what they're missing is she didn't have the choice to purchase the ticket to sit in the white section. So how could it be tax evasion? No, it's just... It's, it's racism and systemic racism, in fact. So the fact that we're sitting in 2023 and these teachers don't realize that you put in a page, again, each avatar looks like a little white person, but you have a page with the inventor of the super soaker. Oh, it's so awesome. He was a black person. But you admitted Viola Davis. But 
so for me, the real slam dunk was I live up the road from where the NAACP was founded in Canada. Yeah, the American National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was founded in Fort Erie, Ontario, Canada, because the Niagara Movement, uh, founded or headed or what have you, uh, by W. D. Du Bois, who inspired or helped found um, the NAACP, they had to come to Canada for their meeting because Buffalo, which is a very multicultural city, by the way, was then. I don't know if it's more so now. I don't think it is. But they couldn't get a venue in Buffalo, so they had to come to Canada. But was that in the brochure? The fact that W. E. D. B. Du Bois, the, the founder of this idea of the double consciousness, this idea that it not only harms the, the person who is being um, subjected to the racism, it also harms the racist. This idea that when you're treated as differently than how you know you are, treated as less than or a second-class citizen, that that denatures everyone involved. It, it, the racist is made less of a human. This is what Martin Buber talked about in his I and Thou. This idea that is as soon as you treat another person as an it, as opposed to a thou or a they, another human being, as I've said before, the sixth line of the Isha Upanishad says, see the self uh, in the other and see the other in yourself. That is the secret to, to our existence. The fact that we aren't seeing this as the way we're meant to see it. I mean, for me, the final straw, I guess, is when we're pitting everybody against each other. I mean, I fall out of this because, as I said before, uh, being a, a bit of a mutt myself, for a long time, I was considered less than human because being Celtic, being Irish. Uh, but what's funny is that wasn't wasn't but just a part of my identity. But even in my history, in the last 20 years, I've been subject to systemic racism myself. I worked in a bank where the service manager kept messing with my bank account. I mean, I had been a banker for 20 years. And because of my name, and that was their excuse, this lady took away my ability to use the bank machine. I was her boss. And when she finally had to be brought up on the carpet because she was actually breaking bank policy because she was messing with my account that was domiciled in another uh, place in the country because I'd been transferred to, to the south from, from somewhere else. So she was breaking the bank's own policies. But I was asked to understand what it was like for her having grown up in Scotland and England during the Troubles. and But I'm like, you do understand that this is not something that should be accepted. This is in the 2000s, right? So for me, it was a shock to, to understand that they're pushing this whole agenda nowadays. And most of these people who push this agenda, I ask if they've read the source material. Have you read W.E.B. Du Bois? And I really don't they have. Because I, I did a review of the book Black Like Me uh, a year or two ago. 
because it was it was foundational for me. That's what I was doing. I was just talking about how I came to where I am as an autodidact and a polymath, uh, an automath, one of my new favorite words. Um, I'm self-taught for, for in the large part, as you can tell, because I'm a bit of a mess. But the black like me resonated for me as, as an Irishman, because even W.D. Du Bois, when he wrote his book, The Souls of the Black Folk, he very clearly stated that it wasn't just black folk. Uh, he mentioned Hungarians and the Irish folk. He mentioned a number of individuals who were treated as second-class citizens, who were felt disenfranchised. And I argue if uh, the indigenous person at the time were considered uh, more human, uh, he would have included them. But I, I do believe if he had mentioned uh, that the indigenous person should be treated as an equal, that I mean, he never probably would have got his books published. That's just my assumption why he never mentioned it, because uh, the indigenous uh, community had had a long history of uh, interaction with the American um, experience. But I had to wonder, because I didn't even put two and two together, and all of a sudden my uh, Black Like Me review was getting traction. Usually it's my uh, Carl Jung reviews or the, 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 the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the I Ching, right? Those are my, my usual areas of, of expertise, but I was just sharing the personal uh, interest. So it, it surprised me that people were watching it, but then I, I, someone reminded me that it was Black History Month. And so I went back to just to see, like, what was the quality of it? And what shocked me is what never resonated for me. <sighs> I noticed, I noticed this incident in the book Black Like Me, but, and, and, I, and I felt it profoundly, but I didn't realize how profound it was. So for me, the most moving moment of the book was after John Howard Griffin, this is a, uh, a gentleman who was willing to risk his life to bring light to the plight of the uh, the African-American Negro. I can't remember exactly how he said it. They, they did use the, the term Negro a lot. But uh, the experience of anyone being treated as less than, as he said, a, a second-class citizen. So this gentleman, John Howard Griffin, was willing to go into the South and even risk his life. I mean, proven by um, his doctor after they had uh, exhausted all attempts medically to darken his skin. He gave him pills, uh, that had side effects known to darken the skin. He was uh, using uh, tanning lamps and such. And when that had failed, uh, his doctor was like, okay, well, I mean, this is the best we can do. But he said, listen, I don't want you to do this. I think it's too risky. But he wasn't talking about the risk of the medicine because literally, I think liver failure, like renal failure was a risk because of the medication, right? He was using it off-label to dye his skin. And I mean, Lord knows what it would do. But no, the doctor was worried about the retaliation we'd get exposing, you know, America's seedy underbelly. And the doctor didn't realize how prophetic it was because uh, John Howard Griffin and his entire family, uh, arguably for years after the book was published, had to deal with incredible, incredible, uh, um, well, hate. There's no other word for it, right? Like when you fill your heart with hate, there's no room for love. But the portion of the book that resonated for me was when John Howard Griffin had um, finished with the doctor and, and realized that he had to darken his skin some more, so he used boot black. 
And so he said, well, I'm just going to surprise myself by turning the light on when I go to look at myself in the mirror. So he didn't look at himself till he was done. He went to the mirror, turned the light on. And you can read for yourself in the book. He was shocked and scared by the visage in the mirror, even though he knew it was himself, even though he knew what to expect, even though he knew it was going to be arguably himself in dark face. But yet he was scared. And he felt the, the, the racism well up from this, this dark place within him. There's that double consciousness. There's the damage that it does to both sides of the equation. W.E.B. Du Bois, about 50 years before, Black Like Me wrote in his Souls of the Black Folk that when you get treated one way and know that you are something altogether different when you get treated as less than and you know that you're a human being like everyone else w.e.b w. du bois wrote about how damaging it was to the disenfranchised fast forward 50 years and john howard griffin very clearly wrote how it had damaged him that he had within him this deep, dark archetype of fear for, for something that was different, this xenophobia. But fast, well, you don't even have to fast forward. I mean, that was the argument at the time. W. Du Bois supported integration and education to raise us up, the disenfranchised and, and the... Uh, the ostracized. At the time, Marcus Garvey, which for some reason is gaining traction again, but Marcus Garvey felt that uh, segregation and, and economics was the way out. But fast forward again, like John Howard Griffin, not long after him, you had the discussion between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Right, Malcolm X, again, like Garvey felt initially, when he was with the uh, Nation of Islam, felt segregation and economics was the way. If they had separate economics and they had, uh, not education, I mean uh, segregation. If they were to separate and have separate, uh, you know, stores for colored folks. Whereas Martin Luther King Jr. said, no, it's, it's education, it's, it's integration, right? We're Americans. That's the problem, being seen and treated as different. Well, this happens so often that Malcolm X, most people... Uh, don't uh, realize that later in life he came to an understanding that uh, he, he was wrong initially. That uh, right education and integration and and seeing others as a human being was was the secret way out, the trick out, the truth. Right. So fast forward to today, we have the same argument. And when we talk about critical uh, race theory, I tend to ask the proponents of this if they've read the source material, because they tend not to have. And just to give you an example, if you're, and it goes back to uh, the Satanist and, and the rock music, if you remember, um, Tipper Gore uh, had a, a bug in her ear about uh, Satanic music. And Dee Snyder from uh, Twisted Sister went on, uh, went on to the Capitol Hill there and told her that if you're looking for bondage and, and masochism, everywhere you're going to see it, right? And he explained that what she 
saw as a song about bondage was actually a song about a friend of his who went in for his appendix. <laughs> right? So fast forward to today, if you don't realize that if you're looking for racism everywhere, that's what you're going to see, then there really is no making you understand. Because, again, having a background in this, when the, the critical race theory started to make some waves, I read some of the books. And I'll give you an example of one of the most famous books. They give a scenario where there's three professors in a hallway standing around together talking. And the one professor had left her office open and her purse in it, but she had forgotten to lock, right? So she's talking with her fellow professors. And then a black student comes into uh, the hallway, comes up the stairs into the hallway, and the professor all of a sudden remembers that she's got to go lock her office. And so, of course, the critical race theorist made a giant leap of assumption to think, well, obviously, that if the professor sees the, uh, the black young lady in the hallway, that, oh, it's the blackness she saw, and immediately she thought crime. So I'll just give you a couple of different scenarios. First of all, here in Canada, if that were the case, that person wouldn't be employed for very long because your average Canadian wouldn't put up with that sort of perspective, obviously. But the real hilarity here is the person that wrote the book had gotten their PhD in the 2000s, right? So they have been in school during the last 20 or so years. And I predate that a little bit because I was in school, I guess, in the mid to late 90s was the last time. I was in like an actual brick-and-mortar school. Everything since has been kind of like when I was in the bank, I used to do this stuff um, remotely. I used to be uh, self-directed and then I'd go in. Uh, I can't remember what they call it, but uh, you go into a college and they're just overseeing your tests, you know. And I lost just about everything I'd ever sat, uh, left sit. I mean, pencils, pens. That's the biggest thing. I adore good quality pens. You can imagine being a banker and, and, and uh, well, you know, I just, I've always loved my pens. It was really quite a weird thing when I was young. But I could never keep good pens, so I just gave up, right? Because you can't leave a pen laying around. It'll disappear. So the fact that this student from the years 2000s thought that the professor immediately thought about the race of the student, which is why it was risky, and completely ignores the fact that the reality is if you've been in a college in the last 20 years, you know that you can't leave anything unattended for a moment or it's going to be gone. So the fact that they don't stop and go, well, we'd actually have to repeat this study over and over again to see if it was just a reaction to any student. Because, I mean, gosh, have you met a student lately? But it's the same thing as these polls. If you're reading into these polls, something that's not even there. Is it any surprise that people just completely disengage from trying to even, you know, converse? 
because as I said, uh, I was trying to have a conversation about class and wealth disparity. And there was a gentleman who brought up the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And that's hilarious to me because I read uh, Marx and Engels' uh, work when I was a teen. And it resonated. But only to me, I've talked about this in some of my podcasts, that I think we're in a modern fiefdom, right? The, the modern uh, uh, bourgeoisie or the corporates and, and uh, the people with, uh, within uh, to the legislatures and, uh, and, you know, not the 1%, but the people that have uh, the social connection. Because the example would be uh, Elon Musk. I mean, he's in the 1%, but he's on the outs because he's not, you know, of the right uh, persuasion when it comes to some of these ideas. Right, but uh, I don't know. I guess I could keep uh, going on about this all day. But um, for me, the be more curious and less judgmental comes to mind. Because as I said, when I was reading that uh, critical race theory book, the example about a student uh, coming into the hallway and the professor uh, thinking, "Oh my God, she's going to steal my purse." I mean, immediately I thought it wouldn't matter the sex or the race of the student. If uh, if you're a professor in, in college or university today, I mean, gosh, I don't think you'd forget to lock your office door because as soon as you turned your back, somebody would be in there, you know, <laughs> emptying the room. So the fact that there's this assumption that we're going to ignore the fact that for some reason, nobody seems to care about uh, crime or theft or uh, boundaries anymore. Well, let's ignore all that, but only see race. Right? Same as the argument like, you know, I don't see race as being a, a dog whistle for racism. It's, wow. I mean, in this day and age, I don't know why that doesn't... Uh, doesn't resonate for, for people that, that that's actually uh, almost a, a form of uh, reverse systemic racism. The fact that if I, for example, like here, this would, this entire uh, episode, it would be uh, grounds for cancellation. Why? Because I just, well, first of all, I'm not within their easily classifiable. Uh, um, identities. So the fact that I would have the gall to do anything but support um, their agenda is enough for me to be cancelled because I'm supposedly, uh, I've been brainwashed into being a, a non-white, white supremacist. But the real reality here is, is they've just silenced people with fear because there's never been a time in history that uh, dissenting opinions were considered dangerous. Right? I'm not talking about hateful opinions being dangerous. We're just talking about alternative. Right? As I've said a million times before, Carl Jung says you need you need to uh, to leave reason aside sometimes to explore the sense and nonsense. I mean, a better example is Dostoevsky's. Uh, Sometimes two and two must equal five. But it's so misunderstood because of its use in 1984, but not enough people reading Dostoevsky. 
the idea is sometimes two and two does need to equal five. This is the meta, this is the placebo, this is the potential of our humanity, that we are greater than the sum of our parts. That's what it's trying to teach us. But we can never forget that two and two is four. It's just as Dostoevsky says, sometimes we must open to the possibilities. And so for me, that was the final thing that um, they're making fun of the Mexican president because supposedly he thinks he has evidence of a, a woodland elf, right? And me being, uh, you know, a Yogacara, Madhyamaka practitioner trying to be of the middle way in all things, my immediate uh, thought was well, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien believed in the fairy folk. Uh, William Blake believed that he spoke to angels in, in the tree in his front yard, I believe. Uh, right? So this belief in the fae, um, I mean, my own uh, Celtic background, uh, I personally subscribe to this idea of the puka, which uh, I guess in is Islam, it could be like the jinn to... Uh, to um, the Greeks, I guess it would be like a daemon or, um, geez, what's the other term they tend to use? But this, um, I mean, to the Jewish, you could maybe even call it uh, a golem. Right? The fact that we believe in these mythologies, these archetypes, doesn't make us less than doesn't mean we don't have an understanding of logic doesn't mean we don't see it means we might see more right that's the potential right the the idea of uh, you can't see the forest for the trees right it's the same idea I mean, you can't see the forest without seeing the trees. You can see the trees. You can concentrate on just a tree and ignore the greater of the forest. But it's impossible for you to not see the forest because of the trees. Right? This is the lesson. The status quo, right? Status quo is the way it is, not the way it could be or the way it should be, right? We could be so much better, but as Hemingway said, it's not noble to be better than anyone else. It's only noble to be better than your previous self. I don't know what more I could say on that, but it's it's not that different from when I first learned about the uh, the, the three marks of existence in Buddhism, right? The not self, impermanence. I mean, these things to me are a positive, right? Same as dukkha. There's a source to our suffering. I mean, how awesome is that? That means there's hope for either to find a way to carry your burden 
or to minimize it. Right? So, I mean, that's this mindful approach of Satisampajanya. That uh, to see the clear light of reality, uh, the true nature of self and others, it's a seeing through. Right? That's why we love the koans. Koans are an attempt to tie up this dualistic mind that only sees the numbers but don't, does not see the meaning uh, within. Right? The, the Ishi Upanishad number six, uh, Buber's I and Thou, the Ubermensch to Nietzsche, uh, Philemon to Jung, uh, William Blake, Joyce, I mean, Harold Bloom, Finnegan's Wake. It was an attempt to remind us that when we stop shooting for great accomplishments, that's when we failed, right? I mean, I love this because I was reading a book about William Blake or Campbell or Jung, and they failed to even see they talked about right what what's a great accomplishment it's beautiful because the uh, the sino-japanese character for great accomplishment is exactly what they were saying it is the character for a person with their arms and legs spread wide so great accomplishment is is a great individual looking to act that's the bhagavad-gita that's the lessons of the Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali. That uh, how best to act in life. Nietzsche would say to live dangerously, but he means to act. It's karma yoga. Right? What's, what's better than the king of yoga, Raja? It's karma. Because even bhakti, which is devotion, bhakti yoga, begins with the act of devotion. Faith, shraddha, uh, pistis in Greek, shraddha in Sanskrit, I believe it's shraddha in Pali as well, it's spelt a little different. They all mean faith, but they mean commitment, devotion, and confidence. And, and how can I prove that as being no different in the West? Because faith has its roots in Latin and Greek before that, and Aramaic probably before that. But in Greek, pistis also means confidence, commitment, and trust. Right? Same as Ecclesiastes or Ecclesia for church in Greek actually means community. So it's not any different from the Buddhist concept of the Sangha, which is a community of believers. Or one of the three books of the Abrahamic faith that opens with all followers of good works, of Abraham, of the good works, uh, doers of good works, uh, who turn towards truth, are all of one faith. It doesn't matter what you call the aspect that you call divine, 
God. I prefer the word providence. Providence speaks to this truth of, right? We can't know. So, just consider it the infernal machine if you must. But because we're a finite being, we'll never be a party to the infinite. So we must just remain doubtful. C.S. Pierce, first rule of logic is doubt. But more importantly is the lesson of the Cheteskoti, uh, the Indian philosophy of maybe this, maybe that, maybe both. Maybe we don't know how to ask the question. Maybe we don't know how to understand the answer. That made its way to Greece via Pyro. Pyro was in northern India on campaign with uh, one of the great conquerors. He developed the same philosophy of the Tetralemma as designed to teach us to be guided by doubt. And so a final of what I mean by doubt... Doubt stats, all stats lie, numbers can be interpreted however you like. But for me, jeez, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. I had one little anecdote about um, stats, but there is so much about it we can get into. And I keep myself pretty busy, so I apologize. But I'm going to try doing some of these... Um, off-topic sort of discussions because um, I, I said actually in the hour-long podcast that I just lost, hopefully I don't lose this one as well, I talked about how I was inspired by this idea of uh, sharing your story because it might be somebody else's um, uh, survival guide. But also, more importantly, where Nietzsche says that we need more masters of none because too many specialists, we risk people with just giant ear without eyes to see or a mouth to speak. Right? We need more interdisciplinary uh, practitioners. This is what the Dalai Lama has been asking for years, which is why I've opened up. I mean, I've mentioned before, being a yogacara and a tantric uh, Buddhist, um, I, I had to uh, float in the Vajrayana circles because that was the closest to my religion, uh, my faith. But uh, since... I'm just as comfortable in uh, modern, right? I can read the New Testament, the Old Testament. I can read the Quran. I can read the, the Mahadevi uh, or the Devi Mahatma. Um, I can read Vedanta. I can read the Yoga Sutras of Pantanjali. I can read the Vedas, the Upanishads. I can read German philosophy, Nietzsche's Zarathustra, Jung's Liber Novus, and they all teach the exact same truth. I mean, I was in the camp as a philosopher, and I used to chide those who believed in universal truths. But I guess there are some universal truths. And we don't all subscribe to the same truths, but there are some truths that transcend time and geography, such as that quote from Hemingway that could be from the Upanishads, that it's only honorable to be better than your previous self. Right? I mean, uh, that essentially 
is the philosophy of consciousness and self. In Yogacara, in, um, in uh, Chittamatra, this idea of mind only, it's not a, a perception that there is a mind. Our physical mind is called manos. It's simply uh, the collection or interpretation of our senses. The, uh, the self is simply a storehouse of preferences, something you subscribe to from moment to moment. Right? So, again, this impermanence of the not-self is a positive thing because if you're someone like me who arguably has been classed or would be classed as uh, untreatable when it comes to trauma because of uh, early uh, traumatic uh, brain injury, um, my uh, adverse childhood experience quotient is just off the chart. Um, I've suffered from trauma from, uh, from childhood, developmental trauma, and even as an adult, um, intergenerational trauma, uh, and, and never mind the uh, autoimmune uh, consequences that, that tends to, uh, to produce, because the problem with that is it, it kind of feeds into each other, right? If you're traumatized, you're more likely to have stress issues. If you're more likely to have stress issues, you're more likely to have inflammatory issues. If you have inflammatory flares, you're more likely to stress. You're more likely to stress. It's similar to the self-fulfilling prophecy how people with chronic illness tend to develop uh, you know, a form of post-traumatic stress because of the gaslighting that we get from uh, medicine and how less than you feel, right? Because... To everyone upon this earth, death comes sooner or late. But how may man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? I mean, the, the answer lies in meaning, in value, in creation. German has a single word for it, Schatzen. It means finding what you value, what you... the meaning to your existence, what you create is your value, is your legacy, is your meaning. But as a human creature, we tend to not see it until arguably to many it's too late. When you're on your deathbed or when you uh, suffer needlessly, right? Like in the book of Job, this idea of how this has become an archetype that this victimhood, when in reality, as St. John of the Cross said, you're never closer to the divine than when you're suffering most. Right? So it is per perspectival, but the real truth behind it is we have an opportunity from moment to moment to reinvent ourselves. We tend to choose not to because we tend to not want to see the truth because truth tends to carry with it good and bad. And most people, as I've said before, the, the beauty of impermanence is seen by those that suffer because they can see hope in the impermanence of their suffering. But those who are blessed, those who don't see 
as much suffering tend to not see the positive aspects of impermanence because how many of us tend to appreciate what we have? If you don't have what you want, you should want what you have. And that begins with the good times, right? Our, our way out, I guess my final quote will be Rudyard Kipling's from his poem, If, if you treat triumph and, dis and disaster as the imposters uh, they are. That's the trick. Right? When you understand, as Nietzsche tried to explain, right, beyond good and evil is a state where you understand that good and evil is very much depending on the situation. Right? So that's good and bad. That's happy and sad. Right? I mean... I guess, no, I lied. I guess my final quote will be um, my translation of, of a, a much more famous quote in another uh, translation. But my translation, I think, gets the idea across a little bit better. I said, all great pleasure must have its roots in great suffering. Right? This idea of we are a dualistic creature. That's that's the... Uh, the uh, the oxymoron or the, the, the irony of, of existence is that it is the duality of non-duality that we must come uh, to terms with. The fact that happiness doesn't exist. All we have is contentment with safety. Unhappiness or sadness doesn't exist. All we have is, as uh, Carl Friston would say, is uh, free energy or uh, um, a dissatisfaction with our outcomes. Right? An expectation that led to uh, to dissatisfaction. So, yeah, let's go back to the Greeks again. And If you don't have what you want, want what you have. It is circles, isn't it? But on that, I bid you adieu. Merci beaucoup pour votre temps. Thank you for your time. Et votre attention and for your attention. Because, wow... We're all struggling, just uh, in our own way, right? There's, uh, there is one perspective in life, eight billion, eight billion facets of the same perspective, eight billion facets to the same perspective. <laughs>